My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 4, Oh My Heck, There's a Gosh Darn Faggot in Our Zionist Utopia. For heaven's sake, we all know it's a sin to swear, and oh my gosh, we would never take the Lord's name in vain. But when my Mormon bishop, George Porteroff, suggested my scoutmaster and his troop should haze the pansy, the pansy being me, of course, and commanded my older brother to fulfill his spiritual duty by repeatedly breaking my ribs while beating the queer out of me, well, gosh dang it, that was just the Lord's work. Utah is the Mormon's biblical promised land, where they are the chosen people, and everyone else is a Gentile. Even Jews are Gentiles. A world where right is right, left is wrong, and normal is batshit crazy. During my childhood in an upscale suburb of Salt Lake City, it seemed everyone was perfectly comfortable with this bizarre reality but me. Perhaps everyone else was just better at pretending to fit in. But the thought that they were just pretending never once crossed my young gay mind. All I knew was this normal, their Zion normal, was fucking whacked. I really don't know where to begin when trying to describe a childhood in Utah. I don't know what matters or even what was real. Perhaps what mattered most were the things that were not real but perceived to be real, or even divined to be real, as well as the screaming in your face unavoidable realities right in front of you that the Utahns somehow managed to subconsciously disappear as if they never existed at all. Mormons have a dissociative ability that borders on the supernatural. Seriously, forensic psychologists and anthropologists would do well to research how Mormons get people to devote their entire lives to that which is not real while being completely oblivious to the blatant realities right in front of their faces. I guess the best place to begin would be with the history of my father's family in the Mormon church. Mum used to call us a point-and-whisper family, because that's what happened everywhere we went, and that's what happens when your family history is taught in Sunday school and seminary. To Utah's governor and to the Mormon prophet, God's one true representative on earth, my grandma and grandpa were just Aunt Gertie and Uncle Ken. The governor was married to grandma's niece, and the prophet was related to grandpa, and both were grandpa's patients at the medical arts building which he ran. In old Mormon family lore, the Saints of Zion established a rather severe, and to a modern mind, thoroughly absurd pecking order. The Merrills are the second largest family in the church after that of Brigham Young, and the most prominent family in the northern realms of the Mormon Empire. Due to the early death of his father, and then the death and incapacitation of his two older brothers, Grandpa became the patriarchal leader of the Mormon Merrill clan. To put it another way, Grandpa became the first son of the first wife of the first son of our family patriarch, Apostle Mariner Wood Merrill's first wife. Or, in colloquial Mormon vernacular, we as Grandpa's descendants were the first of the first of the first of the first of the first. This truly ridiculous distinction actually afforded us quite a bit of superiority, 
Plus, we were easy to spot as the only Merrill cousins without red hair. Our family patriarch, Apostle Mariner Wood Merrill, apparently had a thing for redheads, so he married seven of them, wives number two through eight to be precise, and they all had good birth and hips, an attribute he put to prolific use. He had 43 or 46 children, depending on which source you cite. By 1935, 103 years after his birth, he had 798 descendants. At this point, we literally number in the tens of thousands. If you ever have an urge to meet one of my cousins, just go to northern Utah, southern Idaho, southern Alberta, or the Utah State Senate chambers and throw a rock. You'll probably hit one. I guess I have my eccentric Russian mom to thank from my outsider perspective. She was the daughter of fallen Russian gentry who had lost everything in the revolution but their pride and peculiar ways. Somehow, it was their presence, their foiled aspirations and truncated lives that came to be a guiding force in my young life. Their history spoke to me in a way my equally unique Mormon heritage would not until years later when I returned to Utah as an adult. Our household was not exactly Aussie and Harriet material. The Lord knows my parents really did try. The problem was my parents detested each other. Yet inexplicably, that feeling that I didn't belong in Zion did not extend to our home, though I'm not sure my siblings would agree with me. There were six in our immediate family, mom, dad, my sister Zan, who is nine years older, and was in this constant sorority sister-style competition with my mom to be my surrogate mother, a role she abandoned once the violence started. There was Chris, he was, and still is, the passive peacemaker in the family, the just-don't-rock-the-boat type. Chris is five years my senior. Then there's my older brother Lance, who's seven years older and was the athletic and social star of our local high school. On the rare occasion he even acknowledged my presence at all, it was to express his dislike for his faggy little brother. I was the porcelain-pretty, effeminate little queer son of that crazy foreign woman who married the Merrill boy. But in the Utah dialect, properly pronounced Utah, A's become O's, O's become A's, R's are savored and chewed like a good steak, entire syllables go missing in long words, while superfluous syllables are added to short words. Thus, my mum was referred to as that crazy foreign woman. Mum was inevitably the best-looking, the best-dressed, the best-educated, and the smartest person in every room. She looked like Ava Gardner with beautiful blue eyes and curly black hair. She was a very savvy politician and knew where all the bodies were buried in Utah. Men were terrified of my mother, and women hated her. If an elder from my family was present, I was treated with a great deal of deference. However, when I was on my own, my life in Zion was a never-ending, lose-lose situation where I was always in the wrong, though I had done nothing to deserve it. It was also clear there was nothing I could do to change it. As that career son of that crazy foreign woman, I was just wrong. Always. Period. To me, our home was a welcome refuge from that hostile Zion. I don't want to give you the impression that ours was a happy home. Idyllic it was certainly not. But somehow, I always felt safe there, until I didn't.
My parents waited to divorce until I was 12. Gee, thanks, parents. When they finally did get divorced, I wanted President Nixon to declare a national holiday. Seriously, to any parents out there who were staying in miserable marriages for the sake of your children, what the fuck are you thinking? Is this really the dysfunctional example of a marriage you want to give your kids? Please, just stop. There was another important catalyst to my parents' divorce. My dad had an affair. Frankly, I don't know why he hadn't done so years earlier. Most men in that marriage certainly would have. Dad confessed his transgressions and was called before a bishop's court, consisting of all the bishops in our stake, which is like a religious district or diocese and is presided over by a stake president. The standard punishment for adultery is excommunication. At first, the bishop's court declined to excommunicate my father, given our family's history. However, Dad refused preferential treatment, so they proceeded with his excommunication. When your whole world is Mormon, everything and everyone you know is Mormon, having your dad excommunicated is quite an upheaval, especially since sacred Mormon doctrine dictates that my father and his children were to be ostracized. And not to be outdone by 17th century New England Puritans, it is the official policy of the Mormon Church to announce all excommunications from the pulpit. I mean, seriously, how scarlet letter can you get, right? However, I found out about my dad's excommunication while taking my dog Wimpy for a walk. That really was my dog's name, Wimpy. Gay men joke to pick a porn name, you should take the name of your first pet and the street where you grew up. Thus, when I became a porn actor, I should have been known as Wimpy Chris. One Saturday night, while walking my dog by the schoolyard, I called Wimpy to prevent him from interrupting a neighborhood football game. They stopped playing when they saw me, and State President Porter's son told the other football players my dad was going to be excommunicated the next day. Then, they all came over to bully the fag and his little dog Wimpy. I mean, I'm sure that was a lot more fun for them than just playing football. As if this weren't enough, my dad also lost his business, and we lost our home. The church rented a house for us, while Mum went back to school so that she could better support us. My brother Lance had just returned from his Mormon mission, and Bishop Ruff commanded him to move in with us. What I didn't know was the bishop also told Lance, in my father's absence, it was his patriarchal duty to beat the queer out of me. It turned out the role of bad parental proxy and violent child abuser suited my brother perfectly. He also developed this unquenchable need to be my spiritual and intellectual mentor. Now, this puzzled me. No, more accurately, this really pissed me off and puzzled me. First of all, I already had a damn good, exceptionally kind and loving father, and I deeply resented Lance's amateur hour attempt to replace him. Besides, Lance was nowhere near my intellectual equal even then, and as per his spiritual prowess, well, there didn't seem to be much there either. He certainly had not inherited the marital spiritual connectivity our Mormon forebears are so famous for. And it turns out there's a very good reason for this. According to DNA testing with Ancestry.com, a Mormon-affiliated company, Lance isn't a marital at all. Apparently, my mother also had an affair years earlier, and Lance was the product. The morning Lance moved in, I had my first encounter with my newly appointed mentor, and it went something like this. Mum had let me spend the night at a sleepover with my best friend Dave and his little sister Julie. Julie was around seven or eight at the time. 
Lance was furious that he had not been consulted and immediately started screaming at me. Did you sleep with Julie? I mean, honestly, the only thing I wanted to do with Julie was give her dolls a makeover. I was barely 12 years old, and unlike Lance, who was sexually active at an early age, I didn't have a single sexual thought anywhere in my being, and if I had, it would not have been about Julie. After all, the whole reason he was there was to prevent me from sucking dick, right? So what the hell was I going to do with Julie? However, my incredulous response was, of course I slept with Julie, duh, that's what you do at a sleepover, you sleep with people, jeez. Okay, in retrospect, I'm not sure this was the smartest answer. Though it was technically true, I think I may have missed the gist of his question. This, of course, enraged my brother well past his dangerously low boiling point, and he started hitting me. I was utterly bewildered, and in my naivete I thought, did he find out we toilet papered the bishop's house? When mum tried to protect me, he threw her against the wall so hard it broke one of her ribs and knocked the wind out of her. I remember Chris picking her up and taking her to her bedroom to calm her down, while Lance continued to beat me so brutally he broke two of my ribs. Decades later, I would come to understand, in a way only the victims of abuse can, that every second of my life, and my mother's, from that moment forward had been altered and damaged forever. My mother kicked Lance out of the house after the first beating. But the bishop informed her if she wanted the church to continue paying her bills, she would let the beatings continue. If she did not, she and her children would be homeless. From that day forward, the soundtrack of my childhood became my mother crying herself to sleep because she couldn't protect me. For years, even after the violence stopped, she still cried herself to sleep. I will never stop hearing the gut-wrenching, breathy baritone of my mother's tears. The abuse continued for five long years. A year is such a very long time when you're a terrified child with nowhere safe to hide. I thought of suicide every day. But I promised myself, if I could just survive, I would give myself an interesting and happy life and I would devote myself to making this world a better place for children like me. I remember every detail of the worst beating. I was 16, and Lance had a huge argument with Mum about his best friend, Mark Moffat's mother. After the argument, I was told to drive Lance to the Moffats and drop him off. He was visibly angry, and I was afraid, but I did as I was told. On the way there, Lance asked me what I thought of Mrs. Moffat. Terrified, I knew I had to choose my words very carefully, and I said, I have no opinion of her. Why would I? She has no part in my life at all. My carefully chosen words went unheard. Instead, Lance heeded the violent fantasy in his tempestuous brain and exercised his fury on his God-appointed punching bag, as was his spiritual duty. Pull over, he screamed. I will never forget the exact spot on Highland Drive where Lance reached over, grabbed me by the hair on the back of my head, and yanked me over the gearshift so violently he broke yet another rib. 
He hit me in the face a couple of times, and then he started repeatedly kidney-punching my broken rib while I was still straddling the gear shift with the broken rib. The worst part wasn't the pain, though it was excruciating. I was literally suffocating. I kept saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and Lance just kept pummeling my broken rib. Crying hysterically and desperately struggling to breathe, I still had to drive him to the Moffats after he finally stopped beating on me. When we arrived, he got out, started walking away, then he stopped about 15 feet in front of the car. He turned around and for the benefit of his friends, he started joking about what a little faggot I was. I didn't care he was making fun of me. At that point, I'd become numb to it. I just wanted to somehow stop the beatings, and I was desperate to protect myself. So I took my foot off the brake, and just when my foot hit the gas, one of Lance's friends, Rod Isles, jumped in front of the car. I've always wondered if on some level Rod knew what I was about to do, and also knew I wouldn't hurt him, so he jumped in front of the car to prevent me from trying to kill Lance. I hit the brake, steered around Lance and Rod, and drove away while Lance continued taunting me. In retrospect, I don't regret trying to kill Lance. At that point, I had spent the five longest years of my life in abject terror, and I was desperate to protect myself. I also know I would have gotten away with it. It was impossible to hide the fact that I was a victim of long-term violent child abuse. If another opportunity had presented itself, I honestly think I would have tried again to kill Lance. When I returned home with yet another broken rib and my face and torso black and blue from the worst beating of my childhood, Mum packed the two of us up and we moved to Vancouver, Canada to live with her sister, my Aunt Kira. Early on, I learned to turn off the pain, to transport myself to another place and time whenever Lance beat me. But the sound of my mother's tears will never leave me, nor will her dying words to me. I know what Lance did to you. Yes, it really happened, and don't you ever let them convince you it didn't. The contention between Lance and I never abated. For over 15 years during the AIDS crisis, while I was going to two or three funerals a week, my brother Lance joked at family gatherings that gay men got what they deserved when they died of AIDS. As a lesser brother, I just had to understand that my loss, my pain and unspeakable grief from losing 75 to 80% of my friends to hideous, humiliating, painful, slow deaths before I was 30 was of lesser import to my family than letting poor Lance justify his violent acts and rhetoric. My dignity, as well as the respect and honor for the army of gay angels we lost, was not worth taking a stand to defend and no one in my family ever tried. After all, I was gay, and we gays are children of a lesser god, and we got what we deserved when all our friends died of AIDS. Can you possibly imagine what that felt like? What it does to a person's soul? For over 15 years, sometimes as often as two or three times a week, I held the hands of my dying friends, 
promised them I would never stop fighting for our rights, told them I loved them, and said goodbye. While my family made jokes about it at the dinner table, because we all know gays got what they deserved when the men they loved died of AIDS, and isn't that funny? I understand now why my siblings were never capable of doing the right thing. In so doing, they would have had to acknowledge 100% of their complicity, not just in the heinous crime of child abuse, or the years of vicious homophobic rhetoric they failed to stop, but also in the decades of cover-up. The only way they could live with the guilt of their silent acquiescence was by casting me as a lesser being, like they did our mother, and to convince their psyches that lesser beings don't deserve the same level of respect, dignity, or integrity. In turn, I had to convince my psyche lesser mortals don't deserve justice. It was my fault if I couldn't just forget it and move on. My role as a lesser brother was cemented in my psyche by my sister. Whenever I tried to discuss my being the victim of child abuse, I only had to count the seconds before she inevitably said, Oh, poor Lance. Yes, my poor, volatile, unstable, violent older brother Lance. He was under so much pressure from the Mormon bishop to beat the queer out of me. I just can't imagine how hard that must have been for him. As is often the case in politics, in my family it's not so much the crime for which I seek justice, it's the cover-up. The inability of my family to confront my abusive brother, address, or even acknowledge what he did to me, or most of all, what his violence did to my mother and to the adult I became. To say I seek justice is far too mild a phrase. I have lived my entire life yearning for justice. Justice for me and justice for my mom. I have spent a lifetime unable to move forward without justice, and I acknowledge this is my failure. I remember being a very precocious and somewhat self-assured child, until that first time Lance beat me. I went from being every teacher's prized student to barely graduating high school with a D- average. I spent the five longest years of my life in abject terror. As an adult, it took me 20 years to stop fearing straight men in positions of authority. I distrusted all of them. Being alone with them often sent me into panic attacks so severe I couldn't speak. And as you can well imagine, that had a very destructive impact on my professional career as well. Still, I could have forgiven Lance for the child abuse if only he had been man enough to apologize or even acknowledge what he did to me. Most of all, though, I will never forget his laughter as I watched a generation of men I loved slowly obliterated by AIDS. And that I cannot forgive. Maybe I could have even forgiven my other siblings for never confronting my abuser for his violence or hateful rhetoric. However, I can no longer and never will accept being cast as a lesser brother to assuage their guilt. The final straw came when my brother Chris lied to me about the date of my mother's funeral so I couldn't attend. He now denies it, but when I confronted him, he didn't deny it. In fact, he told me the reason he had done it. 
I told his children I was doing porn. Being a gunkle is the best job I have ever had, and I cherish my relationship with my nieces and nephew. They would have found out I was doing porn anyway, so it was better they heard it from me. In my mind, I was showing my nieces and nephew the respect they had earned. Chris has always gone to great lengths to protect his adult children from the things he and his wife had difficulty dealing with. As it turns out, his children had no difficulty with it whatsoever. They were far better equipped to handle the situation than our generation, and they did so gracefully. Actually, it made us even closer. My niece even said she was proud of me for finding yet another way to lead the way breaking ground for my generation of gays. It was their dad's fragile reality that needed protecting, not his children's. What my brother Chris doesn't realize is he's not protecting his children. Sadly, he's only widening the chasm this behavior has created between him and his children. But for Chris, this was reason enough to do the unthinkable and prevent his lesser brother from attending my own mother's funeral. He told me the funeral was on Friday. Then, late Tuesday night, he informed me the funeral was early Wednesday morning, the very next morning. A veteran's charity had agreed to pay for my flight, but they were giving me the check on Wednesday morning. The earliest I could get to the airport would have been about noon, followed by a two-hour flight and a three-hour drive, at which point my mother's funeral would have been long over. Maybe telling me just slipped his mind, which, of course, is worse, and only confirms my lesser status. In my mum's final years, each time I visited her, she carefully showed me a drawer containing all the things pertaining to Russia that she wanted me to have. Photos, books, our travel journals, palak boxes, and the Ural stone carvings of forest animals that I love, as well as handwritten notes with the genealogical records of our lost family in Russia. Most importantly for me was something I left with her for safekeeping. It was a hand-carved scrimshaw figure given to me by a friend of mine in Moscow. He had carved it during his 20 years of imprisonment in the gulags for anti-Soviet behavior. Given that my entire education, four university and institute degrees, as well as the first 20 years of my professional life, had all been focused on exactly this issue, this small carving meant a great deal to me, and it was quite valuable. For ten-plus years in bold magic marker, carefully placed over the door's content, so you couldn't possibly miss it, Mum kept a sign which said, Everything in this drawer belongs to Buzz, my nickname. I assume someone in my family read it, crumpled it up, threw it in the trash, and took whatever they wanted. I did not get one single item from that drawer, not even the priceless scrimshaw which already belonged to me. A few months later, I got a message asking for my address. After picking through all her valuables, my siblings wanted to send me what was left. A few pieces of plastic women's costume jewelry for their lesser gay brother. Mum and I had a running joke. I would say to her, I never remember you specifically telling me that no decent human being would ever fill in the blank, but I knew, somehow I knew, then we would laugh at my siblings' inability to recognize basic human decency or decorum. What I didn't comprehend at the time was my siblings actually do understand that no decent human being would ever do such things to someone of equal value. But to their crazy mother and to their lesser gay brother, those rules of basic human decency simply did not apply. After that, I wanted nothing more to do with my siblings. Even though I was grieving the loss of my mum, within a couple of weeks, 
I realized a part of me was happier than I had ever been. I was no longer acknowledging my role as a lesser being. I had spent my entire life pathetically groping to be a part of a club that didn't want me as a member, while never understanding what a huge impact this was taking on my psyche. Once I stepped away from them, I was finally able to recognize the crushing cost I had been paying to belong in my family, my self-worth, self-esteem, and self-respect. My role as a lesser brother had cost me my dignity, and I was no longer willing to pay that price. Maybe someday my siblings will come to understand that getting rid of your victim does not absolve you of your crime. The Mormon Church dispatched a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles to my home and officially apologized for their role in my abuse, but they refused to put it in writing, for obvious reasons, the apostle explained to me. Very obvious, I thought. I guess he missed that day in Sunday school when little Mormon boys and girls are taught an apology is only complete if you acknowledge and take responsibility for your wrongs, make amends, and vow never to repeat your transgressions. That was the closest I ever came to justice, one out of three. My siblings aren't even capable of that fraction of integrity. The apostle tried to convince me to return to the one true church. All I had to do was stop acting on my same-sex attraction, he explained. Of course, the author of this particular theological philosophy was my Uncle Bruce McConkie, who famously wrote many books on Mormon theology. Uncle Bruce talked openly about his same-sex attraction, and I believe him when he said he never acted on it. After all, he had eight kids, so I guess this philosophy worked for him. This actually became the official policy of the Mormon Church. It's okay to experience same-sex attraction. That was merely God testing you. But acting on that attraction is a mortal sin. I asked the apostle if he believed in my Uncle Bruce's theory enough to let me marry his daughter. He just nervously laughed. Under the direction of Uncle Bruce, who was following the direct orders of the prophet, the Mormon Church vigorously supported campaigns and fundraising efforts to fight every gay rights bill in the country. Over the decades, the Church directly donated millions to these campaigns, including the bill to ban gay marriage in Hawaii and Prop 8, California's constitutional amendment banning gay marriage. Mormons aggressively encouraged their members to volunteer for and donate to these campaigns. During Prop 8, they set up phone banks to call California voters. They even loaded buses full of Zion's faithful and drove them to California to canvas swing districts on weekends. The Mormon Church was credited with raising 20 of the $40 million that funded Proposition 8. A day after the Supreme Court ruled Prop 8 unconstitutional, I flew to Utah wearing a glove-tight, hot pink t-shirt which said, Prop 8, unconstitutional. Take that, you fucking bigots. The pilot made me take it off, but a local gay charity in Salt Lake City had 40 identical t-shirts made in all sizes to sell as a fundraiser. Shortly before his death, Uncle Bruce had an epiphany. Though he still believed homosexuality was morally wrong, he came to the conclusion that the Mormon Church was going to eventually lose the political battle to deny us our rights. When this happened, he was afraid he would be leaving his children and the next generation of Mormons a terrible legacy of hatred. 
He also feared Mormons would go down in history as the villains of the final chapter of American civil rights history, the fight for LGBTQ equality. At that point, Uncle Bruce was next in line to be prophet, and he tried to convince the prophet to back off the church's official, aggressive persecution of gays. The prophet declined to do so. Two weeks after Uncle Bruce died, the Mormon church officially announced a new, even more aggressively homophobic policy. At the age of eight, any child with a gay parent must choose between that parent or being fully ostracized from Mormon society. In Utah, that means all society, as I well remember. That remained the policy of the Mormon church for years. If your father was a murderer or a rapist or abusive, no problem. But if he was gay, well, how can any human being, much less a so-called Christian with a modicum of compassion, do such a thing to an eight-year-old child? As one of my lovely nieces later pointed out to me, abuse of women and children is the historical foundation of the Mormon faith. Child and teenage suicide in Utah has been the highest of any state in the Union as long as such records have been kept, and remains so throughout this policy. On many occasions, I very nearly became part of that statistic. As for me, well, I kept that promise I made to that terrified little boy, and to my dying friends. My life's work has been, and continues to be, making this world a better place for little boys and girls like me. It turns out Uncle Bruce was right. History's final chapter on the struggle for human rights and equality in America is the fight for LGBTQ rights. The Mormon Church did lose that political battle to deny us our rights, and they will be remembered as the defeated villains of this struggle, as Uncle Bruce feared they would. The Mormon Church and its monstrously homophobic followers, like my brother, are the Selma, Alabama of gay rights. Like Bull Connor and George Wallace before them, Mormons have cemented their place in history as the defeated villains of our nation's noble struggle for LGBTQ rights and equality for all in America. That is their legacy. That is what the world will remember them for. The kids today, they don't care, though. Gay, straight, it's a total non-issue to them. And what a beautiful thing that is. My generation of gays did that. The gay children of Zion did that. I did that. That is our gift. That is our legacy to all children who follow us. It's a magnificent legacy, and I'm very proud of it. I am the queer son of that crazy foreign woman who married the Merrill boy. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I am very proud to say I woke up this gay. <laughs>